This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat. During a decade as the dean of freshmen at Stanford University, Julie Lithcott-Hames noticed a deeply disturbing trend. Every year, more and more parents brought their kids to college and then didn't leave, making themselves instantly available virtually, if not in person. Each year also brought fewer and fewer students who seemed capable of making decisions and solving problems on their own. That so many seemingly accomplished students were notably dependent on their parents left Julie concerned for the students, for their parents, and for the rest of us as well. Where will the next generation of leaders come from if everyone needs mommy and daddy to tell them what to do next? We are in big trouble. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames about her observations and interviews with parents, teens, young adults, and educators, school counselors, and employers. She'll tell us about the consequences of this kind of overparenting, which can be as benign as young adults not knowing how to do laundry and as severe as higher rates of drug addiction and anxiety and depression in young adults. We'll also get her take on why it's so important to allow our children to make their own mistakes so that they can develop the resilience, resourcefulness, and inner determination that's going to be necessary for them to succeed in the 21st century. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. My dad is a hero. He goes into burning buildings. He finds people inside who need to be saved. Then he helps them get out, even when he can't breathe or see, even when he's a little scared. My dad is a firefighter. He does great things. And the best thing he can do is come home. The U.S. Fire Administration, a part of FEMA, reminds you to protect the heroes who protect our lives. Have a smoke alarm on every floor. Test it monthly. Replace the battery yearly. Do your part to get out before firefighters have to come in. The fact is, 60% of all fire deaths occur in a home without a working smoke alarm. The good news is, that's a fact that can change. For more information, visit the U.S. Fire Administration at www.usfa.fema.gov. Working for a fire-safe America. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Julie Lithcott-Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Julie, thanks for joining us. Armin, thanks for having me. So you are at Stanford. I was. I left four years ago. Okay. But while you were there, yeah. you were the dean of freshmen. You had all sorts of uh, <laughs> great experiences. We're going to talk about a lot of those, I think, yeah. um, which really led you to question the whole idea of helicopter parenting or even just what people are trying to get away with calling just attentive parenting. Um, tell us a, a little bit about how you began to first acquire this information. Yeah. So I was dean from 2002 to 2012, and um, in over the course of that decade, uh, three things were happening, um, major shifts. The first was um, students were somehow more and more accomplished each year than 
the prior year students. So the, the admission standards seem to be going up in terms of grades and scores and stuff. Um, on the other hand, students it, it, from one-on-one conversations, I could tell that they were somehow less and less familiar with their own selves. They could tell me what they accomplished or achieved, but not why they had chosen to do it. Um, so it seemed that their life was becoming more of a utilitarian pursuit of items for a resume or of a certain set of scores, but they seemed to be, over the years, at a greater distance from their own sense of self. And then the third trend was parents were more involved in university life and in the day-to-day life of their college-age sons or daughters. And in the aggregate, all of this um, left me asking, wait a minute, why are these 18, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, because I didn't only know them as freshmen, I got to know them better as they age, why are they so unfamiliar with their own selves, so disinterested in kind of striking out and charting their own path, why do they seem so beholden to a parent's expectations and so reliant upon a parent to make a choice or solve a problem for them? At a meta level, it made me worry kind of what's to become of them as a generation, what's to become of us as a society if this next generation of highly capable young adults, by many measures, um, seems to be under-constructed in terms of their adult selves. Well, do you think that they are actually highly capable, or they just have put on the trappings of capability? Well, that's a very big question. What does it mean to be capable? What does it mean to be successful? And I've had to interrogate those those terms and concepts a bit um, as I've given thought to this issue. Um, certainly by many standard measures, they have achieved through high school. They are, you know, highly. They have done the things that um, evince um, an intellectual capacity, a drive, a perseverance. Um, but I think what we're beginning to appreciate is many kids only make it to a place as highly selective as Stanford or schools like it when they have been helped tremendously by a set of parents who've been there to plan out every activity, to hover over every piece of homework, to argue with teachers about grades, to argue with coaches about playing time. They've been, many of them have been highly attended in childhood such that they're able to kind of achieve these incredibly high uh, measures of success. So, you know, I, I think it's actually an open question. Will they be able to um, get a job, hold a job, please a boss, uh, get promoted, weather the, um, the blows that come in life without a parent or two standing by to tell them how to handle things. I think that's, that's the open question, and that's essentially why I wrote this book. Well, and it starts way before high school, though. I remember it, being a parent who was pretty involved in all of my kids' uh, classrooms, as, as far as I could anyway, before they stopped having parents in the classrooms. But my youngest, when she was in third grade, I was helping grade papers, that the little essays that the kids had done. And there were every once in a while, one kid in particular would have these absolutely beautifully written things mm-hmm. that were clearly written by an adult. Right. And you wonder, what is this hel- how is this helping the kid? I mean, she's not, she's, you know, the parent has already done the third grade, hopefully. Right. And you don't need to do it again. And so th- and th- that's kind of why I was asking about whether really and truly they are as accomplished as they yeah. seem on paper. Well, I, I guess, guess the SATs if, or something like that, a standardized test, you generally have to go in there and do something on your own. But grades seem to be less and less uh, an indication of anything real. Well, you're absolutely right. To the point of SATs, of course, the more you can afford to prep for it, the more you can afford to retake it, the higher your scores go. So, um, you know, we delude ourselves in thinking that somehow that's a measure of raw intelligence. As for grades, you've hit the nail on the head. And and I've traveled, look, my book has been out for 14 months. Um, I've been all over the country. And 
I hear this everywhere I go, Armin. Parents admit that they're doing their kids' homework. Why? Because they perceive that other parents are doing their kids' homework, and they know <laughs> if I stop helping my third grader with that essay, then she'll be competing with everyone else's parents. Okay, parents know that. And so we're at this point of realizing, now why are parents doing it? Because they know that help equals a better grade. So there's a short-term win, and we all love our kids, and we all want to help our kids, and we've gotten misguided in our thinking. We think that doing their homework, helping them get the better grade, prepares them for success. All it does is show them, hey, kid, you can't be a third grader without your parents' interference. You can't be successful without your parent. You'll always need your parent. It's unethical, and teachers don't have a clue what their what the kids in their classroom actually know when we overhelp. So it's problematic by every measure, um, and it's it contributes long term to a poor quality of mental health for our kids because well, they've essentially been undermined in the living yeah. of life by themselves. Well, I think part of it has to do with the fact that we're using a misguided definition of the word help. That yeah. help would be now. What do you think about that? Or let, let's talk about the, the rules that are going on here, or here's how you might think about a different math problem. A helping, at least in my view, in many ways, seems to be to encourage them to think differently or to think it come at a problem from a different angle, not, well, you can't do it, so I'll do it for you. That's not help. Absolutely. And when I'm talking to parent audiences, when we get to the Q&A, we get to the nitty-gritty of this, where where we end up talking about, wouldn't it be great if your kid's elementary school and my kid's high school you know, was to issue a, um, a directive, a guidance, a piece of guidance at the beginning of the year at Back to School Night if they would, you know, take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle and on one side say this is um, the appropriate type of help at this grade level from a parent and then draw the line. On the other side of the line is this is inappropriate, you know, <laughs> examples of inappropriate help. Yeah. In other words, parents need guidance. They look around and they see, well, that dad is – practically outright doing the science experiment, I guess I need to do that too. I need to stay up all night with the glue gun for the California Mission Project because that's what so-and-so's parent down the street is doing. We need guidance in how to pull back and actually implement the appropriate type of help that you've just begun to articulate. And we need the schools to enforce it. We need schools to say, when you cross the line, you're undermining the teacher-student relationship. It's unethical. Please don't. And if we see that you're doing it, we're going to dock your kids' grade. I mean, we need the schools, instead of, to, of coddling and encouraging this you know, unethical parental behavior, the schools need to be brave enough to stand up and say, uh-uh. You know, so it seems like there's two different things going on at the same time. There's the well-intentioned... I think genuine, it comes from a good place, to wanting your kids to succeed and yeah. wanting to give them all of the resources that they need to succeed. And then later on, when you get to college, there's an, a, a sort of a, a bizarre refusing to let go. I mean, it seems like one of the definitions of good parenting might be preparing your kid to take off on, on his or her own. And it seems like, and then we'll go, I want to talk about this in our second segment a little bit more, but some of the things that you were seeing as the dean of students, where parents are not letting go. And, and there's that. That is one of the biggest components about why you called the book How to Raise an Adult. Yeah. I mean, I think for the first half of my deanship, or the first third, I just was dismayed by um, the fact that every year we seem to have more parents who thought they had the right to pick up the phone and say, I disagree with the grade my child got in this biology class. I mean, there was a moment not that long ago when that sort of phone call from a parent would have been absurd. And nowadays, at campuses across the nation, not just the Stanfords of, of the world, it's 
quite commonplace for parents to think, just as they've always argued with teachers and coaches K through 12, they think it's appropriate to keep doing that in college. I remember when that was absurd, and I watched it become more and more the norm. And here's the point. If you've been holding on tightly to your kid throughout throughout childhood, you can't simply let go when they get to college because they need you. They think they need you. They might actually need you. You need them. You need that codependent role you've been playing in their life. It's this terribly unhealthy intertwinedness, and it would feel cruel, though, to let go when your kid is now at the you know precipice of college. So the point is, as you said, you know, one of the definitions of being an adult is or being a successful parent is put yourself out of a job. Our job as parents isn't to create a dependency that lasts for the rest of our lives. It's to raise kids to the point where they can be independent of us. Talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to keep talking to Julie about some of the stories that she saw in the trenches. I'm Armin Brat, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. All right, class. Let's hear what everyone did this weekend. Jill? Well, I raised my older sister to a big oak tree. It was at least a hundred years old. My mom said I must have set a record or something. And then we went down by a stream and perched up on this huge rock and saw all of these little minnows swimming around way below us. And then I rescued my little brother from an evil slug king who was guarding him at the bush fortress. And my sister and I brought him back to our super twig fort for safety. And then we all laid out and told stories until it got dark. And the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? Yeah. We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Anyone want to come this weekend? Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week and find the fun, adventurous you. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. I remember hearing stories from people about parents going to job interviews with their kids, which is something that's typically happening after college or shouldn't be happening at all, but when it's happening, it's happening after college. Did you have kids uh, coming in or parents coming in to talk to you with their kids in tow? Yeah. So, um, you know, to get from the kind of high-level concern that I had to the specifics, here's an example, and it's right in, in line with what you've just said. 
So um, it became more and more common for parents to feel they had to be the ones to gather information and hold on to it and remind their kid of it, their college-age kid. For example, I would get an email from a parent saying, we're bringing our son to Stanford for freshman orientation next week. Um, He wants to get involved in research at Stanford. We'd like to meet with you to talk about that. So I'd reply saying, happy to meet with you. Don't forget to bring your kid and, you know, set up an appointment. And then the three of them, two parents and a kid, would be in my office, and let's say the dad would start talking, you know, well, Johnny wants to do research here. And I'd smile, look at Johnny in the eye, big smile, hi, Johnny, great, great to hear it. Tell me more about your interests so I can um, figure out how to get you plugged in most effectively here at Stanford. Johnny would smile, shrug his shoulders, look over to his dad, who would then start to tell me more about what Johnny had done to date in the realm of research or science or whatever the field was. And I would keep redirecting my eye contact to Johnny to signal, hey, kid, you're in college now. They're going to go home, we hope. And this relationship (laughs) and connection needs to be between you and all of the faculty here who exist for the purpose of helping you acquire an undergraduate education. This isn't about what your parents think or want. This isn't about your parents advocating for you. It's on you now. And, you know, I was signaling that in a very friendly, welcoming way. Um, But this was happening over and over again. A kid so accustomed to a parent um, asking questions on their behalf, advocating for them, remembering things, they just didn't know how to do it any other way. Here's another example. Um, Got a phone call. My daughter, who's a junior in college, is going to be studying abroad next term in, you know, pick a country. When is your parent orientation for study abroad? You know, and I found myself like, shaking my head i have my my hand on my forehead right now as i tell you this like wait a minute this young person we're talking about is 20 she could be in the army right now and be going to germany with the u.s army but instead she's going to go to germany with stanford university why is it that you feel parent that you need to gather the information to prepare her for that why do you not trust your daughter why don't you think the university can can sort of equip her to make this trip like what is going on you know, I'm curious. I, I would imagine that when you were the dean of students, you freshman, just were freshman. just freshman. Well, <laughs> close enough uh, th- that you were involved in organizations where you would be having contact with other people in similar situations at, at other colleges. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we all know Stanford, Harvard, the, the Ivy League schools are mm-hmm. not typical of of college education overall, I would imagine. Well, were you finding this that the same thing is going on at less selective, less competitive colleges? This was happening over the course of the last decade. This topic of parental involvement in the life of the university, in its systems and um, administration and bureaucracy, kind of advocating for sons and daughters, this was happening at four-year schools in every tier. Okay, how do I know? Because we would go to conferences with one another. We would have conversations with one another. We're reading what's what's being published in um, the literature within academia. You know, increasingly, it was dawning on administrators and faculty that things are changing on our campus. Our students don't seem to be able to come and approach us with a concern. They need their parent to do that for them. You know, our, our students don't seem to be able to register for classes on their own. The parent says, I need the kid's password. I need to do it for them. It's too hard for them or they're too busy. We were all noticing it. And the conversation among us moved from occasional to regular 
meaning at our conferences, it became like the bigger and bigger topic. What do we do about parents who are essentially encroaching upon the relationship that a university or college faculty and administration have with students and have always had with students? Um, I'll tell you where we didn't, where I didn't hear this happening, and where I would often get pushback when I would raise this issue: community colleges. And as I sat with that distinction, it made sense to me. Who tends to be the bulk of the population at a community college? What we call non-traditional college students. Older, maybe they have a child, maybe they're supporting their family, maybe they're going to school in the evenings because they're working a, a full-time job. You know, for all kinds of reasons, folks like I've just described have a stronger sense of self. Uh, stronger sense that I'm in charge of what what happens to me and yeah. I need to make my own way. It's this sort of wonderful irony about a, a sense of self and maybe a, a grit, a resilience, a perseverance that may come if you are um, less affluent, um, less supported by family, and so on. It's it's a beautiful irony that kids yeah. you know, at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum or who have had less in life might be better equipped if they can get to mm. college, might be better equipped to thrive on their own there. I'm wondering if you had the same experience or you found that the kids who were in military academies, Annapolis or West Point or the Air Force Academy, for example, whether they were more likely to be on their own and, and less involved. I, I can't imagine a colonel <laughs> t taking a call from a parent and, and having anything to do except hanging up the phone. Armin, I interviewed colonels at West Point for my book because I wanted to ask that very question. And what I heard from a couple of them is even at West Point, the preparedness of cadets has been impacted by this over-involvement of parents in childhood. So West Point is hearing much more frequently these days from a parent, you know, why are you, my, my child's roommate is gone for the weekend. I understand you won't let him sleep alone. You have a policy against that. What is that about? Why are you doing that? You know, um, instead of accepting that West Point has a policy and that's their policy. Um, uh, students are more likely to break down in emotionally, more likely to be in tears. Um, um, oh. Students are, are needing parents to, uh, to accompany them to their first assignment, say Fort Bragg. You know, a parent is going to go make sure the kid gets an apartment. Um, and, and these colonels at West Point, I interviewed two of them, are like I am, shaking their head like, how did we get to this? Why do parents have so little faith that their offspring have any capacity <laughs> to function in the world? So, yeah. And this is what makes me ask at the meta level, what's to become of us as a society? Who are we talking about? We're talking about millennials. Yeah. They're an incredible generation of young people who want a chance to make their way like any generation has. But th some of them, too many of them, have been overparented, so they reach chronological adulthood and don't have a sense of how to fend for themselves exactly. over the course of a day. Yeah. And we should all be worried about that. You know, we only have about a couple of minutes left, but I want you to talk specifically about that for just a, just a little bit, about the, the downside of this, what's happening. And you're talking about the kids not being chronologically prepared. I mean... Yeah. That's going to affect, it seems like, much more than that. I mean, yeah. think about it in, in a global right. scale. We're not going to be competitive if right. you've got people who can't be engineers without calling up mom and dad. Uh, right. So there are three main impacts. The first is they seem to lack life skills, just the sort of get yourself up, get yourself fed, get yourself out the door with your work in your bag and get to wherever you're supposed to be, again, on their own without kind of a parent um, telling them what to do or how to do it. They lack workplace preparedness because they're accustomed to being told what to do by their parents, and so now they expect a boss to be very specific about what to do at every turn instead of being able to kind of think a few steps ahead and anticipate what the boss might need, all right? 
And then number three, their mental health is impacted. They suffer from soaring rates of anxiety and depression as a generation. And increasingly, research is showing a link between being overparented and having higher rates of anxiety and depression. So we are harming them every which way, which is so paradoxical because we adore them. We've just lost sight of the fact that they're not little bonsai trees for us to clip and prune to resemble an ideal shape of a human. They actually need to become a human, and a human becomes a human by doing the work of life, by struggling a bit, learning from it, picking themselves up, and moving on. You know, I think that just that last little bit that you said is something that probably every parent, if he or she heard it out of context, would say, well, of course, but we're not doing it. And Armin, I'm a parent too. I haven't said that yet, but I got two teenagers, and I wrote this book because I was at, at, in the beginning I was a critical university dean saying, "What the heck is going on?" And then I realized with my eight and ten year old that you know I was cutting my ten year old son's meat, and I realized, <laughs> oh God, I'm going to be one of those parents of an eighteen year old who can't let go because how can I possibly let go of this boy if I'm still cutting his meat? You know, and that's when I became this compassionate dean slash parent slash human who said, wait a minute, we with the best of intentions are undermining our kids' chance to become independent. We've got to pull back, you know, take the long view, parent for the long view, let them struggle, let them do more for themselves with confidence that that's how they build a healthy whole self. Julie Lithcott-Haynes is the author of How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Julie, thanks so much. Great to have you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Dear Mom and Dad, one thing I've learned in the Army is that when you're lucky enough to get a little time off, you should put it to good use. So I'm taking a moment to write and tell you that I'm fine and doing well. We have good days and bad days over here. We try to remember the good ones and get through the bad ones as best we can. Mostly we have each other, and that's what keeps us going. That and the pride of our commitment to getting the job done, whatever it takes. I miss you all very much and can't wait to get back to life as usual. Please tell everybody hello for me, that I'll be home soon. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people, people just like you. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, we have two sons almost exactly three years apart. The oldest was a dream child in almost every way, but his little brother is pretty much the exact opposite. My husband and I find this surprising since we tried to do everything with our youngest exactly the same as we did with our oldest. Why are they so different? What you're saying seems logical. Perfectly logical, in fact, but unfortunately, there's very little that's logical when it comes to kids. The reality is that just like fingerprints, snowflakes, and zebra stripes, no two children are ever going to be exactly the same, even if they're raised by the same mom and same dad in the same house. While you may believe that your younger child has grown up in exact same circumstances as his older brother, he really hasn't. And if you think about this, it'll start to make sense. To start with, you and your husband are hardly the same as you were when your first baby was born. If you were like most brand new parents, you may have felt completely overwhelmed, afraid of making mistakes, and panicking about every little thing, and generally not sure what to do with your baby. 
You probably read a ton of books and magazine articles, asked all your more experienced friends and family for their advice, and made more than a few middle-of-the-night phone calls to your pediatrician's 24-hour advice line. But ultimately, what got you through that first year or so was making mistakes, and you probably made plenty of them, just like we all do. And more important, learning from those mistakes. Three years later, when baby number two arrives, you're very different and much more confident as a parent. From day one, you instinctively applied the lessons you learned from raising your oldest, and you made a lot fewer mistakes, or at least different ones. You already knew what to do to soothe your baby. It didn't take you nearly as long to decipher his cries and his behavior. You knew whose advice to take and whose to disregard. You could already change a diaper in the dark, and you may have taken the pediatrician off the speed dial. The same applies to your husband. Even though you may be living in the same physical structure as when, you're, when you were first-time parents, it's a very different home, one where two children now live. That doesn't sound like a big change, but your oldest spent his first three years as an only child, while your youngest has always had a sibling. Since firstborns are the center of mom's and dad's universe, that's whom they model themselves after, they tend to adopt their parents' adult mannerisms, speech patterns, and tastes. Younger kids, however, instinctively gravitate toward their older siblings and tend to take their cues about how to act, speak, and play from them. And then, of course, there's the issue of time. Taking care of two kids takes a lot more work, and unless you've managed to clone yourself, your youngest is never going to be able to get as much one-on-one -on -one attention from mom and dad as your oldest did. That may explain why so many parents report that their oldest children are calmer and more peaceful than subsequent ones. Younger kids learn very quickly that they have to be louder and more aggressive to get anyone to pay attention to them. Given all that, how could your kids avoid being different? That doesn't mean better or worse, just not the same. If you've got a question for us or a comment or a suggestion, please visit our website, MrDad.com, and drop us a line. We always respond. We'll be back next week with another Ask Mr. Dad segment or a Parents at Play segment. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.